Film Comment Podcast is sponsored by Kino Lorber. Kino Lorber is proud to release a new restoration of Personal Problems, an experimental soap opera from 1980 that is a result of a collaboration between a pair of pioneering Black artists, Mumbo Jumbo author Ishmael Reed and Ganja and Hez director Bill Gunn. Personal Problems opens Friday, March 30th at Metrograph in New York. Hello and welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. My name is Violet Luca and I'm the digital producer. The term ham is often understood to be a put down, and yet these scenery chewing actors are the ones who can give us pleasure like no other. In this episode, I was joined by Ashley Clark, Senior Programmer of Cinema at BAM in Brooklyn, and Michael Kresge, I'm the Editorial Director here at the Film Society of Lincoln Center. To discuss a few of our favorite over-actors, here's our conversation. Thank you both for coming. And so today we're going to be talking about hams, gammon, uh, the pink stuff, the big pink stuff you see up on the screen, just in time for Easter. Sorry, uh, Passover people. Pesach. Sorry. We'll do a different... Are you apologizing to me? <laughs> You're already having Jeez, it up. To you, the Jewish listeners, I am sorry. <laughs> we'll do a special, uh, I don't know, Pesach-themed uh, podcast at some later date. But for now, we're talking about hams. And it's more it's a very auspicious time. There's a Pacino series happening at the Quad. And Pacino being one of... Hollywood's great hams of all time. I so I thought so. we'd start this off just sort of the greatest hits of him being ham because he started off as someone, Panic of Needle Park, very sort of nuanced, you know, living theater sort of. Michael, what do you what do you associate when you think of Pacino ham in the same sense? <laughs> well, actually, um, I always chart the um, the Al Pacino coming into his own as a true honey-baked actor would have been in 1979's And Justice for All. This is yes. where uh, the climax of the film, he starts to shout, he's a lawyer, starts to shout, you're out of order, this whole courtroom's out of order. And then from that point forward, almost every single movie he made is basically Al Pacino in this register. He just yes. completely transitioned. It was just a new way of life. Because yes, his early stuff, like you say, Panic Needle Park, Scarecrow, mm-hmm. Godfather, mm-hmm. Um, they're pretty low-key affairs, but... After 1979, the year I was born, incidentally, oh. coincidence, um, it was it was all over. But when I think of Al Pacino um, being this highly mannered, highly over the top, you know, every line reading just dripping with like strange, unexpected nuance and um, odd emphasis, I think of oddly, I think of Angels in America, yes. um, which I think he's absolutely brilliant in, but. Every time he speaks, uh, he plays Roy Cohn, Mm -hmm. and every time he speaks, he gives every word the strange little twist. And that was the point where I realized for myself that I really, really enjoy this. Yes. And um, for uh, that was a time in his career where it seemed like people had kind of turned on Pacino, and Mm -hmm. he had just become, they thought, a parody of himself. But when I watched Angels in America, I mean, it's great material, of course, but I realized maybe this is actually what I want out of a certain kind of American acting. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, we'll, we'll definitely get to talk about Scent of a Woman and Heat and all sorts of amazing yes. things that he's done in his career. But for, for me, it really, really is this performance as Roy Cohn, who's dying of AIDS in the film, um, obviously this legendarily heinous human being. 
Mentor to Donald Trump. Mentor to Donald Trump. Pacino just, it's almost like this reptilian approach he takes to it, which just exploded the character for me. But And the empathy comes through eventually in the performance as well, despite all the bluster. It's, it's clearly a very constructed and thought through explosion of ham um, <laughs> for, for Pacino. It, it's interesting uh, really to, to go back and watch The Godfather Part 1 and 2 it's actually quite shocking how understated he is, and I think perhaps that's something we'll come back to again and again here. The, the, the actors that are known for being over the top, many of them do have this register that is understated and, and considered, and it's not very often tapped into. Um, I could talk about Scarface, but I, I run the risk of doing my impressions. <laughs> we'll get to those later. <laughs> yeah, it'll just come so up. So I need to control yeah. myself. There is a film uh, from the late 1980s, I believe, called The Local Stigmatic, mm. um, which... Yeah, <laughs> Sounds blasphemous. Yeah, uh, <laughs> shout out to the quad for to dredging this up. This is a, a, a filmed adaptation of an off-Broadway play that um, Al Pacino and the, the fellow American actor Paul Guilfoyle starred in um, by a guy called Heathcote Williams, a radical lefty British playwright from the mm-hmm. 60s, otherwise known for writing some very filthy lyrics for a Marianne Faithful track yeah. that uh, <laughs> listeners can, can look up on Spotify. Um, but what distinguishes this performance for Pacino is he's very much over the top. He's also doing a, a British accent. He's also trying to be a Cockney. Oh, yes. And it really is quite something to behold. The, the most inherently New York man of all time standing there. And it's not like the occasional word here and there. It's fucking really long, <laughs> really, really long monologues. And there's no, not much of a plot to speak of. It's just these two guys hanging out, talking about the, at the dog track with the, the racing. And, and betting and coming. It's like a, a, a male heavenly creatures vibe. These two kind of sociopaths. But you can't get past the accent. The clip's all over YouTube. And it's just Pacino, keep, he keeps going, dogs. <laughs> so he kind of, he, he'll just about get there with certain intonations, but the script requires him to keep saying the word dogs. <laughs> And he's just the sheer Pacino-ness just drips off him. And there is the extra textual idea that by this point, this is, you know, um, way, way post Scarface. He's already got this reputation as being this larger than life character. And to, 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 to make himself small and to sink into this role. I mean, it would have been really fun to see him on Broadway, just off Broadway, excuse me, spitting all over the audience. Um, yeah. But it's just incredible stuff. And I'm really glad the court have dug it out because... Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, and it is, it's unsettling to watch. It's so weird. I'm not saying it's bad. It's just really weird. You're just aware that you're watching this very heightened construct. But it's one of the great bad accents. <laughs> I think Glenn, Gary Glenn Ross is the movie where I, I, get, I think I have gotten the best sense of what it must be like to see him perform on stage. And that's another, like you're saying, an aspect of Pacino is, is he has a theater background. He loves the theater. He likes mm-hmm. to talk about how much he loves the theater. Um, was there any scenery left on that movie? <laughs> <laughs> chewed. Right. So this David Mamet uh, adaptation that uh, James Foley did in 1992 of Glenn Gary Glenn Ross is just uh, Pacino kind of shows up partway through the film mm-hmm. he's the, his ricky roma is his character and he's talked about as this he's big dog. really important salesman um, the big dwarf. and and honestly like <laughs> <laughs> and honestly up to that point we've already seen a lot of scenery chewing from every 
single other person in the cast. Jack Lemon. Jack Lemon. Baldwin. Alec Baldwin, of course, is Trigger Brass Ball Speech. Yeah. Ed Harris. Yes. <laughs> it's Alan Arkin. It's Jonathan across Price the board. As well, he's not yes. exactly the most understated actor. No. In shares, that, in that movie, time with in that movie, he's Pacino. Yeah. In comparison, he's the most understated. But by the time Pacino shows up, it's almost like that the grand entrance of the. He's the real deal, right? Mm-hmm. He's the, he's the true uh, star and the, the entertainment you've been waiting for, and he does not disappoint. I mean, I I would say the reason I like everyone in that film, but the reason I watch it over and over again is just to keep re-experiencing the intonations. Oh, and don't forget Kevin Spacey in that film. And Pacino outhams Kevin Spacey. Yep. It's quite something, isn't it? Perhaps one of the all-time great or disgusting hands. Yes. But there's a similar similar arc in a way to the the Roy Cohn. Like there's this bluster and and confidence that slowly ebbs away and you Mm -hmm. end up with Pacino's desperation in Glengarry Glen Ross. And it's quite affecting, I think, in that movie. Well, I want to talk about quickly about a Pacino performance that I, as a young cinephile, loved watching over and over again, The Devil's Advocate. The absurd movie that says, well, what if the phrase The Devil's Advocate was real? (laughs) And so it goes, the son of Satan, but he doesn't know that he's the devil's son. Uh, Keanu Reeves, a good old boy who just maybe every third word is like sort of a southern accent. And the rest Keanu is just Reeves like not really good at maintaining accents. No, it's a classic like Keanu where he's like, "Oh yeah, y'all." Like it's very like <laughs> unconvincing. But it, we all know what we're talking about anyway. Uh, so he moves to New York with his wife Charlize Theron, who has one of her most histrionic performances, and she literally loses her ovaries. So it's fair to call this histrionic. But the end part, one of my favorites, where it's just Pacino monologuing. Most of what he says just makes does not really follow each other, but he's doing it so impassionedly. Jeffrey Jones is in this and he's like jogging through Central Park and he gets beaten up by these demon-possessed homeless guys. And just Pacino's just like talking in the background, just like endless talking. And uh, it's great. And then uh, Keanu Reeves kills himself and then the devil's like, no! And he bursts into flame. And then this like bad late 90s CGI statue behind him that has been swirling in this like lustful orgiastic pleasure is like no 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 you think at this point pacino was already being cast like typecast in these kinds of roles yes was he seeking them out was he seeking out the most over the top role he could possibly find because when you're paying you're playing the like, devil the devil it seems like this he, he probably thought going on. he could have a little fun with it <laughs> he probably, you know, he he knows that De Niro has also played the devil mm-hmm. in Angel Heart, and he was like, "Well, <laughs> that's true. If you, you know, anything you can do." Um, yes. But I, yeah, I'm interested in what you know. Why does Pacino work? You know, what he mm-hmm. there is obviously that he, you know Pacino has become the extra textual thing where you know he's bringing that baggage of himself to the screen, but often overacting is just automatically seen as a as a pejorative. It's a bad thing. Mm-hmm. But I feel I'd be disappointed if he underplayed it. some yeah. of these roles. They're good because, precisely because of that full throttle, 100% commitment. You know, he's got a dream job. Yeah. Amazing. No. <laughs> amazing, great movies. And he's got no, he's got no reason to t- t- dial it down. Exactly. It's a, it's a sort of sensory pleasure that mm-hmm. he offers. It's pleasing to the ear to hear the way that he says certain words. It's, it's fun to watch because he's always doing something. He's doing, he's doing a bit of business you didn't expect, whether it's complete diffidence in some cases, like in Angels in America, some of the most, some of this overacting is actually 
telegraphed underacting, right? He's mm-hmm. that he's just going to fix his eyes on something in the corner and he's going to look completely disheveled and you're hyper aware of him doing it. Like that's the thing. You're always hyper aware of yeah. the decisions he's making as an actor, which some people consider, yeah, it's a pejorative to some people. That's a bad thing. To me as a viewer, I find that really fascinating. It kind of opens it up and that, you know, becomes like metatextual in a way. Right? Like, and I think that's what we'll talk about a lot today. The people mm-hmm. that we're going to be talking about, they kind of enhance the experience for us. They don't ruin these films. We're not mocking them. We're actually enjoying what they're doing and it makes us uh, complicit in what they're doing. And in a sense, he's bringing the immediacy of the stage. Obviously, he has a stage background yeah. where there, there is a sense of film as a slightly more sterile medium where everything is blocked and planned etc but there's a spontaneity to watching Pacino all you have to do is look at Hank Azaria's reaction to his outburst in in heat I love watching that scene because it's like so his eyes are like popping out of his head he's like drawing an ass in the air with his hands both of his hands and his hands are his fingers are sort of splayed out and he's drawing like this cartoon ass but also sort of caressing it as he's drawing it then of course he says, "Oh, she got a great ass." And then, and then he's like, ah. "Hank Azaria is terrified." And then he goes, "Oh, you're and you're right up in it." And he like wiggles his way up this imaginary ass that he's drawn. This is crazy. And it's like you can watch this clip on YouTube and be like, "This is crazy." But even in the context of the movie, it's fucking crazy. It's true, unforgettable, bizarre. and yeah, it, that it does yield, you know joys after repeat viewings you, could, you do get this sense you know potentially apocryphal story that Hank Azaria didn't know it was coming right um even if he did know that was coming how do you prepare yourself for that kind there's of there's no way <laughs> for that kind of outburst and, and there is a, there is a liveness to, to his performance on film yes. which is really interesting to me I love that he menaced the guy who does Chief Wingham's voice I love that on principle that he's just used to being like a fucking black box and reading some lines and then Pacino's just in his face he doesn't like authority figures exactly <laughs> Um, to talk about Scent of a Woman for a second, because it's a, an oft-watched movie in my household. <laughs> um, it's on, the, installation style. It happens to be on hmm. just coincidentally quite often. Um, I just find it to be an enormously pleasurable experience. Um, it's like, a, for people who haven't seen it, it's a very hackneyed drama from the early 90s in which he plays um, a cantankerous old blind man who... Wasn't um, he a vet too? Who is also a vet. That's how he went blind from an yes. accident in the war. Um, and he is going to New York City. It's, I think he's from Connecticut or something. And he's <laughs> going... Unbelievable. Well, he's like kind of <laughs> wasting away in a little hovel and he hates everyone who won't talk yeah. to anyone. He hates his grandkids. And he hires Chris O'Donnell at his most baby-faced and innocent as a teenager to take him to New York for a weekend. The secret plan is that he's going to kill himself. It's going to be his last weekend. And of course, it's up to Chris O'Donnell to ultimately talk him out of this. But the movie just wedges in this entire other frame where Chris O'Donnell is having this kind of dead poet society, school ties-esque moral ethical (laughs) crisis um, at at his like very stodgy prep school. And so he's being made example of. So it. So once this narrative proper is done, you look at the time and it's there's like still 45 minutes left. You know, they've resolved the Pacino problems. What's happening next? So Pacino has to come to the school to deliver an impassioned final speech on behalf of this young boy who's helped him. And it is one of the most insane. First of all, it's self-referential because he says this whole room's out of order. So he's referring to his own injustice for all performance. Right. So he kind of starts screaming, getting up out of his chair. Tell, he says, I'm going to take a flamethrower to this fucking place. <laughs> I mean, it's one of the most enjoyable bits of ham acting I've ever seen to the extent that, you know, like my husband and I quote it like 
every other day we, we have like a little bit from that speech. Yeah. It's just all about giving Pacino a climactic moment. The entire movie builds to him having this like 10 minute monologue. They know what we want as viewers. Mm-hmm. Had Denzel Washington been watching closely, he could have modeled his Malcolm X <laughs> on Pacino in Scent of a Woman and perhaps walked away with the Oscar instead. And yes, that's right. Denzel Washington lost that Oscar to Al Pacino. But Al Pacino, um, you know, he was, he was first Oscar. You've been bamboozled. <laughs> <laughs> Combine the two performances into one. Yeah. I mean, and to quote another favorite film of yours, Ashley, another nominee that year, Stephen Ray in The Crying Game, an extremely subtle performance, actually. Though well, we know you I love mean, Forrest Whitaker in The Crying Game. I'm not, you know, poking or prodding you to do a little imitation or anything. <laughs> Would you sting me then? <laughs> Let me tell you a tale about the scorpion and the frog. <laughs> Because I'm from North London, you see. <laughs> Why'd you sting me, Scorpion? Because it's in my nature. <laughs> I mean, I love Forrest, but if we, we could do a whole different podcast on, on accents. Yes. But with, this comes up know. again because this is also part of what is pleasurable about ham acting. It's like, what is fun about Pacino? He's a very distinctive voice in a way that most actors do not. And it's like, once you hear it, you know that it's him. He doesn't have a distinctive, like a squint or a gesture, a way of gesturing like um, De Niro does, right? And so it's all in his voice. And that's why I feel like he d- he knows that his power originates from there. And he just fucking goes for it. Can I take a slightly different tack? And sure. if, like, stop me if, if I'm going too far, but... Jack Nicholson's an interesting one um, mm-hmm. because I was, I was wondering whether Al Pacino has any kind of acolytes or pretenders where you have someone like Christian Slater who modeled his entire career seemingly on, on Jack Nicholson's tics and affectations. Mm-hmm. Not to say that Christian Slater is a bad actor. I find him in, enjoyable in, I watched him a bit in Mr. Robot before I became too confused and, and gave up on it <laughs> entirely. Um, but has Pacino had anybody follow in his footsteps and try and copy him in a certain way? Or, or is, is he inimitable? I think he, they feel like there are definitely people who imitate him, but they're in movies that we do not see. They're just in like movies that are like very direct to video or direct to streaming. And that's not, again, maybe they're totally great and fine, but like he, I feel like he did set the bar for a certain type of wise guy film that is generally not in the theater. But he's also, it's unfashionable. You can't, you can't really wedge it into to something because in what, like name a contemporary non-superhero film if there is such a thing anymore in which that brand of dramatic acting is considered viable you have to come with the baggage it has to be your persona otherwise nobody would possibly accept it or it's down to this question because i mean it's interesting to think about the way performance has changed with all these based on true story films because that is so much about mimicry and in the past mimicry was all about comedy pantomime nailing every little gesture nailing everything as opposed to like capturing in essence the way that what you're talking about the way that El Pacino works that's kind of going away which sucks really sucks and I don't like Jackie and I never will I would consider talking about that performance today but yeah we'll say that for the accents podcast done that enough I'm I'm sort <laughs> of a fan of uh his performance in the underseen romantic comedy Frankie and Johnny, oh. um, which is a really weird bastardized adaptation of the Terrence McNally play. Um, that was performed on stage by somebody I'm going to be talking about later. Um, but Al Pacino, even in that, like the way that he's 
the way that he's like constantly coming on to Michelle Pfeiffer's character, there's no subtlety to it. <laughs> and you can understand why she keeps pushing, pushing, pushing him away. It's actually kind of overbearing. But it, but it's it's I think of that because it's weird to kind of put him into a romantic comedy m- mode. Doesn't quite work. I think I will go back to excuse me, Scarface, which is such a heightened film all around. Yeah. Um, with o- Oliver Stone's script, which is just turned up to eleven. De Palma's direction, those outrageous excuse me, compositions, <clears throat> and everybody else seems to be on the wavelength uh, of Pacino. So even F. Murray Abraham, Paul Chenard, Mary Elizabeth Mastrantonio is, is kind of very intense and over the top. So when it's placed in that context where he doesn't st- stand out or stick out, it works perfectly, I think. Um, and and I've, I kind of love that movie, unironically. I know it has a pretty bad rap. I kind of, I'm a bit of a fan of Manglehorn. Uh, the, yeah. the, the very underseen and strange... <laughs> Um, movie in the underseen strange career of David Gordon Green, mm-hmm. whose, whose career path is kind of impossible to to track with any coherence. It's a strange film with him as this a locksmith. There's yes. a lot of metaphors about keys and locks. Yes, a lot of them. It is not a subtle movie. No, <laughs> but, but it, that's why you get an unsubtle performer. Yeah, and he's, he, tr- he seems to be trying to tamp himself down in that film unsuccessfully, which gives the impression of a, of a man who's... Well, he seems to have spent his whole life suppressing his emotions, and it's, I found it quite moving, quite powerful performance. Not a great film, it's flawed. But, uh, yeah, if you like lock and key metaphors... It doesn't. It's, it's, it's for you. Ashley, do you want to talk about your first choice? Yeah, I'm going to take the really obscure... Difficult choice of Nicolas Cage. <laughs> Tell me, wait, so who is this guy? Well, I visited his tomb Oh. Uh, in New Orleans. <laughs> There's not many people you can say that about. He's, he's fascinating to me, and it, it harks back to what I was talking about before, about knowing full well that an actor has a particular, that they've got a range. You know, if you watch him in, for example, something like Adaptation, uh, where he plays twin brothers, mm-hmm. uh, both writers, one a, an opportunist hack, the other one a deeply earnest Robert McKee disciple, uh, this Charlie Kaufman, Spike Jones film. And I find him incredibly moving in that film and, and fairly understated. Mm-hmm. He's got that role, but then he also seems to have just willingly fallen into this. I think he was perhaps the first actor to be truly memed. Like uh, the first, maybe the first actor who, you know, in concert with the development of how social media was used as a as a method of, of film criticism and discussion. Right, right. He started popping up in videos like Nicolas Cage loses his shit on YouTube, which is this in- extraordinary supercut of him going absolutely postal, um, often in films that I'd never heard of. One called Deadfall, where he's got a ridiculous wig and and he's just flinging coat hangers around and going like, fucking hangers, <laughs> which very much like you, Michael, has become a, you know, a, you have catchphrases. That's yeah. one in my house. Yeah. Another phrase about coat hangers is big in my house too, but it's not that one. But he just interests me as, as somebody who has settled into a groove of, and every now and then he'll surprise you and do something a little different like the, another Gordon Green film, Joe, which is... Oh, again, yes, I love that movie. You know, I think it's an interesting film and he gives this... Again, a, a more restrained performance as this lone, lone kind of lone wolf guy who goes around town with his dog and fixes things and beats people up occasionally. But yeah, it's only restrained in the sense that he doesn't have a lot to say. But when he explodes, he's just like, 
you know. And and there's there's modulation within that performance right, because right. the script allows him to to cycle through certain moods and tones in it. Mm-hmm. But generally, what what you go to a Nicolas Cage film for is that that absolute hysteria, something like The Wicker Man by yes. Neil LeBute, a wonderfully well advised remake <laughs> of the uh, Robin Hardy classic. And the bees, no, and the bees. Cla- another bee, great line. Yeah, the I'm bees. only aware of it through the compilations on YouTube. That's I never it. Saw I mean, he, he's, he, yeah. to a younger generation of people who weren't around to see, leaving Las Vegas, who don't know him as a rumblefish, or once mm-hmm. a kind of an actor who was taken fairly seriously, I think. I, I don't know the yeah. extent to which he was seen as a as a proper thespian. But for younger viewers, this guy is a full-on psycho meme and, and not really, you know, he, he, he works constantly. He's in all kinds of VOD movies and... I don't know, he's, he's just a fascinating character for me. Yeah. Like Pacino, it is sort of a financial thing, which is sad. But he gives so much. Or keep working. Yeah. It's also funny that he's a, he's a good case study because, you know, what is that point where something tips over from being pleasurable to unpleasurable? Because mm. clearly the people we're talking about would script the line for some. Like, And he's a good example of somebody that I just completely stay away from. I can't watch a Nicolas Cage movie. And I know that <laughs> I know that um, a lot of cinephiles and people who uh, watch movies either ironically or unironically f- just it, just enjoy him on a physical level. Like he's mm-hmm. clearly talented. Um, I grew up watching him. I, I I saw you know there was Leaving Las Vegas, of course. There's Moonstruck. Peggy Sue got married. Yes, I mean yes. yeah, he he was doing a Honeymoon in Vegas. He was on a lot of films that were on at that point of the more normal. I'm doing air quotes variety. Um, Though he was always doing interesting things in them. Like if, even in Peggy Sue Got Married, the Coppola film, it's ostensibly kind of like a little character thing. He's doing the weirdest voice. And he mm-hmm. just puts on this bizarre, bizarre, like kind of a throaty uh, nerd thing that's over, so over the top that it becomes really, really performative. But once he kind of crossed that line, I guess it's Con Air, when he started doing more action things and he started kind of seeming to believe a little bit into his own cult and his own hype, I start to find it completely um, overwhelming uh, and I, I suppose, it, it, you know, for performances is kind of like trying too hard to do the thing that expects you to want or thinks that you're mm-hmm. expecting. Then I start to kind of lose it. And I, I, I don't think I've seen a, a Nicolas Cage movie in quite a long time, actually. I mean, another point to that is who they're working with, who they're being directed by. I get the feeling that Nicolas Cage, frankly, tramples over a lot of the direct. You know, I've just got this image of a director sat in their chair with their head in their hands saying, well, not, I can't stop him. It's like right. a bull in a china shop. He's going to do what he's going to do. He's reached that point now. Right. Um, when he worked with, with Lynch on Wild mm-hmm. at Heart, he's working with a director who has that off-kilter sensibility and, and seems to have a way of teasing out unnerving and unsettling performances from unconventional performers in a way that we saw uh, recently with Twin Peaks with uh, people like Jim Belushi and Tom Sizemore showing up, mm-hmm. uh, giving rather... Wonderful performances, I think, and, and very unsettling. Um, but that's because they're, they're keyed into the tone, which is very set by set by an extremely talented um, director who knows exactly what they're doing. Uh, when Cage is not working with the top of the line directors, it just it just seems to be a, a horror show. Truthfully, right. you could almost chart this a similar thing with somebody like Jeff Goldblum, who started doing himself after a certain point, but prestigious directors like what he has to offer. They like his weird bullshit and uh, they're willing to oblige it or like sort of work with it in a certain way. And like Nick Cage just, um, he's a screaming flaming skull and ghost writer. Like that's all you can say. Like, it's like, okay, <laughs> that's your brand now, dude. And you, you know, the, the, the idea of them going viral is assured. Yeah. 
Yeah. Jeff Goldblum is going to go viral now. He's become right. this this thing online. Right. This event. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that that's all that's not I don't mean that in a condescending way. That's just part of how film culture is consumed these days. Exactly. I mean, Matthew McConaughey, the ultimate example of somebody who just kind of bought into their own persona as it was constructed outside of himself. So now when he shows up at award shows, he has to say, all right, all right, all right, every single time. I mean, he doesn't have to, he chooses to. Cold and it's eyes. just, it's yes. just a horrendous thing to have to look at. Yeah. Um, like for whatever talent he may have, it's over. Yeah. Because I can't take him seriously as an actor. He doesn't disappear into anything. He just does that. Um, Nicolas Cage isn't so much a personality, uh, like a public personality, but even in the role I do get that same sense. It's like, you came for a show, I'm going to give you a show, mm -hmm. and there's not much left for me to do as a viewer. I feel kind of left out. Do you think he's salvageable? You know, were he to once again work with Lynch? Sure, or why not? Somebody he's talented. Give him, that's the thing, he is talented, and in, in a way that for somehow with Pacino, it doesn't pull, it really does with, with Cage, I think. No, that's true. The Film Comment Podcast is sponsored by Kino Lorber. Loyal listeners of the Film Comment podcast will remember our conversation about Bill Gunn's 1980 experimental soap opera, Personal Problems, from a few weeks back. Kino Lorber will be releasing this long-lost film in a brand new restoration from the original camera tapes. Personal Problems will open Friday, March 30th at the Metrograph Theater in New York with writer Ishmael Reed in person for Q&As. The film will then tour select cities, followed by a VOD and home video release in June. Michael? Who's your choice? Um, choice? Mine's, a, mine's a little off. Well, first of all, I, I want to say that like when people talk about hams, they it seems like they usually talk about men mm -hmm. um, just because there's all that testosterone, all that like weird dude energy, animal energy, <laughs> um, though um, the hams that I tend to like the most are women. And my first choice is, is sort of an odd pick maybe, but I really do think of her as someone who just gives it her all. And it, it, or gave it her all in performances. It's certainly after a certain point in her career. That's Anne Bancroft. Mm -hmm. And uh, for people who really only think of her in, in her early career, like The Miracle Worker or even The Graduate, um, you may be confused about why I would <laughs> pick Anne Bancroft as a ham. But if you actually, if you chart her career as it went along, as she aged, she kind of started giving more into the comic side of her of her talents. Um, I do think that her marriage to Mel Brooks had mm -hmm. a certain effect. Like she started acting in his movies more. So she was in Silent Movie and To Be or Not To Be in the 70s and 80s. And then she started doing more character roles and smaller roles. And she just seems she seemed to really just enjoy being uh, like unfettered. And um, so if you watch, say, um, Torch Song Trilogy, mm -hmm. in which she plays the uh, Harvey Firestein's, let's say, unaccepting mom, <laughs> or um, Night Mother, in which she plays Sissy Spacek's unaccepting mom, <laughs> or Home for the Holidays, in which she plays Holly Hunter and Robert Downey Jr.'s unaccepting mom, mm -hmm. um, you'll see that she's just sort of every single line is just this joy. Like she finds these amazing ways of saying things. She's always working in some other kind of accent, like in uh, Night Mother, she's doing this kind of terrible, thick Southern accent that's nevertheless very enjoyable. She's from the Bronx originally. So let's just say that. So when you hear that accent, it's kind of amazing. She's also always working against much quieter actresses, like Sissy Spacek being the great example of a very, very subtle, naturalistic performer. Her, like the, Night Mother is just the two of them pitted against each other in a room for an hour and a half. And Aunt Bancroft is just, her character is basically, she's trying to convince her daughter not to kill herself. That's what the entire play is about. And she's just getting more and more manic 
eyes are bugging out and hair is getting wilder, whereas Sissy's basic, the, 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 what's frightening about her performance is how controlled it stays. So Anne Bancroft is constantly kind of put into a movie to add this like destabilizing element, like even in Great Expectations where she plays Miss Havisham. I mean, is there better casting than that? I mean, eight love grand. I mean, how, <laughs> how much better could anything be than that? In this terrible um, but off-sighted ham movie Malice from the early 90s where Alec Baldwin says, I am God. I think she gives him a run for it's his money. Sharon Stone in it. It's Nicole Kidman and Alec Baldwin. Yes. And she shows up in a cameo as Nicole Kidman's long-lost mother. And it's one of those scenes where she just has six minutes. And she's just looking at the camera. And she ends her scene by gulping down a big thing of scotch. And she says, let the games begin. And that's how the scene ends. <laughs> she, I mean, I am just kind of obsessed with her. Um, and I just think it's interesting how we might not think of that that type of actor as this sort of ham that we're talking about. But... There's nobody better. Sort of going on what you were saying about how we generally think of men, male actors as hams. And it's it's sad because I was listening to this thing the other day on the radio about how men keep their feelings inside, you know, and, you know, as boyhood through teenagehood, they're sort of like more emotional, sensitive. And then something happens in the late teens and they just sort of shut off. And that is something that kills you not being able to access those feelings. John Lithgow will live for 100 years, <laughs> 150 years, because he is so tapped into his emotions. He has, first of all, I have to say, he is the perfect face for this because he has a, he's very tall, six foot four, and he has a very long face that is made even longer by his receding hairline. So he has this giant palette to play with, and he has sort of a distinctive voice, not as distinctive as, say, a Pacino, but it's always just dripping with emotion. He's just someone who, like, looks at their watch, not by sort of, like, rolling up their sleeve, but pulls out their arm and then looks at the watch and is like, okay, it's four o'clock. Like, it's very, every little thing is very pronounced. And it, that that bigness, and it's sort of like a very generous thing, and it's clearly related to theater. He also started in the theater. Both of his parents were involved in theater. And, you know, he talks about in interviews like, oh, I'm always, you know, I was always told to dial it back, dial it back. But he did it a little bit, and he still kept that bigness. And I'm so glad because it's something that really makes, you know, Buckaroo Banzai, where he has these weird, crazy fake teeth. He's doing an Italian accent and running around with these alien guys with names like John Big Boutet. And wow. <laughs> can you can you pause and tell me a bit more about this film? Oh, you've never seen it? Oh my God. Well, um, it's like this crazy, it was like, it was like made to be a cult film in the early, like 1984. It has, yeah. So it has Peter Weller is the star as Buckaroo Banzai. He's like a rock star scientist, something or other. He is like, he's a, don't so, make me summarize a plot of fucking Buckaroo Banzai. By the way, I should have known. The full <laughs> title, I think, is The Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai in the Fifth Dimension. Eighth. So if you're eighth dimension, so if yes. you're looking it up, look under A. Okay. Because yeah. I get, is that how people look these up more on, under <laughs> ABCs? I guess not. It is one of the. It has undoubtedly the best okay. closing. You pick credits. up your video hound. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> video watchdog. Three and a half bones. <laughs> 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 yeah. Oh, yes. And then also, of course, he does another great, um, totally unhinged multiple performance in Raising Cain, uh, where he's doing like a Norwegian accent and then all sorts of other people. Yes. Multiple personalities, multiple including pers children, which is always a good sign oh. of a, an underacting. Uh, 
Yes. Effort. Yes, yes. Um, this is what McAvoy was going for in Split, but he's there, nowhere near. Exactly. Yeah. I was actually, I said this earlier, you got you to gotta see Split. I mean, don't, because it's really <laughs> terrible. But James McAvoy's performance is something. He, he plays, I think, 22 characters. Yes. None of them well. <laughs> <laughs> but he shaved his head. That's commitment. That's method. But Lithgow's got the other, you know, the other gear as well, like in uh, Blowout. Yeah, yes. like that mewling voice on the phone after he kills the prostitute. You made me do it. <laughs> you made me do it. <laughs> I love John Lithgow. I think yes. he's great. And of course, I would be remiss not to mention Roberta in The World According to Garp, uh, which is maybe not the most sensitive portrayal of a trans woman. However, he puts his all into it and like he'll do little things like stand there while someone else is talking, like another character's talking, sort of like touch his hair and like preen himself in a way that is like, uh, I don't know what sort of woman you're basing this on, but if there was a female equivalent of you, that is correct. Well, at that time, it was very sensitive <laughs> and, and very groundbreaking. Of I haven't course. seen it in Compared quite a to, while. let's say, dressed to kill. Exactly. I was just about to say, <laughs> here to that. Two, yes. two years earlier. Mm-hmm. Who wants to go next? Well, I mean, I, I, I'd happily pick up on the idea of women hands. Yeah. Um, I, I was just thinking of, of Shelley Winters. Oh, uh, yes. Do, doing some extraordinary work in Cleopatra Jones opposite Mm -hmm. um, Tamara Dobson as the opium dealing uh, lesbian queen pin of of this (laughs) this crime network. And this is really something else. I mean, obviously the stuff I've seen of Shelley Winters before that, nothing prepared me for that. I'm not overly familiar with with her body of work. Have you seen a patch of blue? No, I haven't. Something. (laughs) She's pushing. She's pushing. Was that for Shelley Winters? Was it really a stretch to, to go so OTT? She just it, Shelley Winters just seems like if you watch every performance, like straight, you go if you go from Place in the Sun to Night of the Hunter, you're still in a relatively subtle territory. Get to Diary of Anne Frank, she's still kind of that, see that's what I know. And Night then, of the Hunter, and then once you get to Lolita, she yes. starts to do really interesting stuff. Patch of Blue is like full on, almost like Monique and Precious bad mom abusive <laughs> stuff, like screaming, flailing, uh, slapping across the face. And then, you know, Poseidon Adventure and then Cleopatra Jones. She's, and then um, the Curtis Harrington films. Yeah. She's, she's pushing it. And it's oh my God. really, really great. The I Curtis, mean, I love her. Yeah. The Curtis Harrington film I saw her in was Who Slew Auntie Rue, yes, where she is a aging showgirl who married rich and then had one daughter and that daughter slid down the banister and died. Tragically. <laughs> in a tragic banister slaying accident. A banister that was not very long. And then she like goes around killing children. But you know, so that's a good. It's a good. Uh, it's good for that. It's very good for that. And then the other person that popped into my mind was Brenda Blethyn, um, yes. who was repped fairly hard by uh, Cameron Austin Collins on this very podcast mm-hmm. a few weeks ago when he was talking about secrets and lies. Unlike Cam, I, I kind of feel she drives a train through this film, um, and and partially that's because I think of, of Mike Lee's very idiosyncratic approach to. Mm-hmm working with actors where they don't begin with the script, they improvise, they workshop their characters, and then they come together. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. You end up with four or five actors in completely different movies, to my mind. I think sometimes the results are wonderful, that dissonance really works, but there's something so beautiful and understated about Marianne Jean-Baptiste's performance as the daughter. Mm-hmm. Um, and she seems to be more in tune with the wavelength of the the, the suburban dreariness of the film yeah. this very down-to-earth sensibility and and then you, I, I just felt Brenda Blethyn really the screaming the over-the-topness of it I, I think 
I watched the film recently after for the first time in maybe 15, 20 years, and it really didn't work for me. It really seemed to throw the whole thing off, and I and I would I couldn't wait for her to not be on screen. <laughs> And she's on screen for quite a lot of it, and I, I do like her. You know, I don't, I don't, I don't ever want to come on here and fully slag people off because I think she, she's a really good act, actor. But in, in, it's the balance thing. It's the balancing act that I think we've we've all been alluding to when it comes to overacting, and and how that works. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I remember Secrets and Lies, I think of as, despite the amazing cast of so many great people and Marianne Jean-Baptiste and Timothy Spall, um, I think of it as her film. So for me, she like completely sets the rhythm and tone of the film, but that might just be my memory of it as opposed to the experience of it. Like I, I can't separate her crying, her screaming, her physicality from the movie itself. It's hard to imagine what that movie would be without her because it, it becomes such a high-strung experience. An anxiety-producing experience. Like, what would that movie be if that character weren't so constantly on edge? I'd probably like it a little bit more. <laughs> oh. um, but, you know, I, I don't know. I, I, maybe I, re I reacted to the film quite well the first time I saw it, but there was something it's hard to articulate that really threw me off. I think maybe just the way my tastes have developed, um, I, something a little bit more considered um, was what I was after. But that's not the film that was made. So, mm. My next... Ham actor is the great Kathy Bates. Yes. Um, and she's somebody who also comes from the theater. And I think that it's, it's an interesting distinction to make as I was thinking about Anne Bancroft's from the theater and John Lithgow is from the theater and now Kathy Bates and Al Pacino. So far, I'm pretty sure Nicolas Cage is not from the theater, <laughs> which is actually. I'm not entirely sure about that. Maybe he's done things here and there, but he keeps acting since he was very young in okay. movies, um, which might make his case so interesting and strange that he's actually doing that for the camera. Can and you he, imagine? He never well, learned on stage. otherwise. Yeah. <laughs> Who knows? Um, you have to rope off the first, like, <laughs> 10, 15, 20. Yeah. But Kathy Bates, who... Um, Famously was on Broadway for many years, and she was in the original Frankie and Johnny and the Claire de Lune. Not in the film. They recast her with Michelle Pfeiffer. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> um, but what's really interesting, I looked, was thinking back upon a lot of Kathy Bates' roles, kind of starting from her Oscar-winning breakthrough role in Misery, um, whatever you want to say about that role and how it's written and how misogynist it is. It's a very interesting performance, and it's kind of a thrilling performance to watch. Um, she very rarely has played mothers. Um, she plays pretty independent people and independent women. You think of primary colors, her, her like political fixer, who's disillusioned, it's a ridiculous role. She's disillusioned by politics, so she kills herself. It's like, oh, you, I thought you were a smart political person who's been in this business for years, but it's an interesting role. Fried green tomatoes. Um, she plays uh, Molly Brown in Titanic. She plays, she's in Diabolique remake as the detective. Minani Paris, she plays Gertrude Stein. She, she's, she's done a lot of really interesting work in a lot of non-cookie cutter roles. For me, the the most wonderfully hammy thing she's ever done was Dolores Claiborne, which is directed by the devil's advocates, Taylor Hackford. That's so right. very good at directing hams. <laughs> so for anyone who's seen Dolores Claiborne, um, have you guys seen Dolores Claiborne? You might know that what's best about it is that it's full of great put downs. <laughs> I mean, there are a lot of things that are really good about it, but it has this that kind of Stephen King um, colloquial uh, main folksy thing. Mm. And 
the angrier she gets, the more elaborate her put downs become. And the way that Kathy Bates delivers these lines with this insane, like voracious glee, uh, it, it, it makes for like repeated viewings. You need to watch them over and over again. And I, I have prepared a couple just because I cannot believe how insane they are. Um, this is what she says to Christopher Plummer. I bet the last time you were sorry was when you wanted to use the pay toilet and the string on your pet dime broke. <laughs> it's like, it takes, Excuse me? It takes a second to, pro- to process that one. Mm. Okay. It's, she's saying you're cheap. Right. Okay. It takes a while. And uh, she also says, to Christopher Plummer, <laughs> you listen to me, Mr. Grand High Poobah of Upper Butt Crack. I'm just about half past give a shit with your fun and games. <laughs> Okay, so there's a lot of this in Dolores Claiborne. Yes. And Kathy Bates, who's also great in About Schmidt, I should add. Mm-hmm. Alexander Payne's much debated About Schmidt. Um, Kathy Bates is somebody who um, just seems like she answers to nobody. So when she's on screen, she's always playing characters who also answer to nobody. And um, if you go back and you watch any of the performances I've, that I've named, you'll see somebody who's just like cutting directly through the screen. And I've always been incredibly admiring of her and what so so this is a good example of somebody who i call a ham as a way of um calling attention to her amazing like communion with the camera and with the audience it really has nothing to do with a, a it's, it's like i don't say that she's hammy to evaluate her acting in any kind of negative way i say it as a complete term of endearment and i think that that's something that's kind of good to point out that we're not criticizing these people we're no. actually putting them on a pedestal yeah interested in the idea of what it must be like to collaborate with somebody who is in that position, someone who doesn't clearly doesn't answer to anybody. My mind wanders, of course, to Daniel Day-Lewis. Yes, um, who, another great ham. Well, you think of Gangs of New York, for example, and, and a performance so wildly over the top. I'm just, I've always been interested in how that plays with other actors. Yeah. Um, and, you know, he, he's clearly capable of doing, again, I've used the word so many times, understated with Phantom Thread opposite. But he's also very goofy. And that and very mannered. And there are lots of like even his manner of speech creates these sort of ambiguities that the film is playing with in a way that's like amazing. I know, I mean, of course, like Daniel played incredible you. technical appear, uh, technical performance. Yes. When I say understated, I just mean he's not shouting and screaming <laughs> like like he does in, in many, some other movies. Right, right, right. But right. it is it is very mannered mm-hmm. and and so lived in and, and thought through. Every every yes. gesture is. Is heightened. Yeah, the way that he holds the camera, even in his so-called subtlest roles, Lincoln or Phantom Thread, I mean, he's not doing very much, but every single thing he's doing, you're hanging on. Um, very few people have that kind of incredible camera sense. Yeah, that's true. I um, To go back to Kathy Bates for a second, I love her in American Horror Story. And I think the way, I mean, obviously, Ryan Murphy, a great fan of idiosyncratic old actresses, bringing Jessica Lange back to TV a lot of times and Kathy Bates. And I love watching them. And Angela Bassett. And Angela Bassett. Yes. I mean, just watching those three women play against each other is such a pleasure. But I liked the freak show season of American Horror Story for that reason, because she's a bearded lady, but she, so, and she's sort of like subservient to Lange's like, 
Marlena Dietrich before Marlena Dietrich character who sings like Bowie covers. Um, it's incredible. And then becomes like an early TV star. It's, I, I think there need to be more Ryan Murphy's who just sort of rewrite the world in this amazing way. Well, he, he's ushered in a, an era, I suppose, of post-irony mm-hmm. um, where the, you, this comes a standard now. I think I'm thinking of the OJ Simpson. Yes. With whatever John Travolta, whatever magic John Travolta was spinning in that. Or like, or even fucking David Schwimmer, David where he's Schwimmer. like, "Juice, Lord, protect the juice, juice." <laughs> like, I just, like, he's like, "Juice." <laughs> Again, it's I love extraordinary it. stuff. It I mean, is. And th- th- it it's, is. It's, it's over the top. It's wild, but it's fully in concert with the overcrank, the formalism of it. Yes. These kind of wild camera moves and the ridiculously intrusive soundtrack that's just mm-hmm. perfect somehow well yeah and it's like it shows like this is why this thing completely broke everyone's brains <laughs> this is why the this is why we live in the present we do and that's why he's just got like a seven thousand billion dollar deal to mm-hmm. do what he wants forever mm-hmm. you know he does seem to have minted something that's really connected well i'm into it the, the final actor that we just have to talk about came before all these other people and that man is William Shatner. It's one of those things where it's like, what came first? Was it the voice or was it everything else? Or did the voice arise from sort of the histrionic stuff? There's an apocryphal story where he had to, he was like an understudy who didn't know his line. So like a stagehand had to read out the Shakespearean script to him. And that's why there was sort of like this delay and it got such a great reaction from the audience. He decided to do that forever. I don't know if that's true. However, um, there is nobody who talks like William Shatner. And there are people, there are people who try and they just can't do it. You know, it's just like. That wasn't bad. Oh, thank you. Um, Juice. (laughs) Someone should have talked about Schwimmer, even though that's not really moving. I think we have. I'm okay. I'm sorry. (laughs) Because I think otherwise he was in one movie. That's true. Which was the pallbearer. Well, he directed a uh, run, fat boy, run. And dressed men. And yes, we go. Hey, have you heard William Shatner's cover of Mr. Tambourine Man? Of course. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And no, and that's the other thing that I was going to say. Again, he's an actor who's very much predicated on this very distinctive manner of speech, his voice, this delivery. And there was clearly a time, like you can watch the first couple Star Trek movies and you see that there's this genuine pathos and like he's really trying to do something nuanced. And you can see that in a lot of the original Star Trek episodes too, where he's really working through something and being emotional. And then maybe towards the end of it where he was not feeling it so much, he was just sort of like, okay, let's, uh, let's just get this over with. But then there's a time in the mid nineties where people are like, oh my God, have you ever heard this crazy spoken word album William Shatner did? And it was a way for him to keep being in the spotlight. And he has since, you know, played up this persona. He's in all these stupid commercials for like some hotel insurance, whatever, what have you, playing on this idea of who people think he is. And I don't know if it's necessarily pleasurable for me anymore. Sort of like Jeff Goldblum is no longer pleasurable to me in the way you were talking about how you can't look at Nick Cage anymore, maybe. But Shatner's not a dumb guy. And he sort of was like, all right, fine. If you want me to do this, I won't be TJ Hooker. I'll just be <laughs> like this weird spoken word version of myself that was supposed to be a one-off cash-in in like 1969. It's interesting to lay this all against, I suppose, the hi- history of performance and mm-hmm. what was in vogue at any given time. Right. We haven't really talked about minstrelsy or someone like Tyler Perry, who's right. very directly in dialogue with... <laughs> 
fairly controversial minstrel performance traditions yeah but he's repackaging those to new audiences but it's you know i don't know if there's a way to map this now in the limited time we have but how some of these performers that have been over the top have been really out of step with the prevailing trend so you have someone going way overboard in a time of more like reserved character acting mm -hmm. which makes that stand out i don't know whether that's true or not right but and it makes it, it's difficult going back knowing from when you're watching me from the 30s or 40s or or 50s like which of these actors was like was charlton heston you know kind of seen as ridiculous in ben-hur and the ten commandments at the time i don't think so he won an oscar for ben-hur so probably not right. now whenever you watch those films it's kind of difficult to get past you know that kind of you know square jawed teeth gritted uber masculine thing that he does um and every line is just dripping with like bizarre earnestness but at the time you know, it's, we're, I'm not entirely sure. It's, it's interesting to go back. Sometimes you do read reviews of, of the moment from maybe more elevated critics like Manny Farber when they'll just like kind of take certain actors to task, usually in mainstream films. I don't think Ava Gardner was considered particularly good at, in her right. time. Or Joan Crawford definitely sort of had this trajectory. Had ups of, and downs. Yeah, yeah, of being seen as over the top and made fun of for that and then... I don't know, those French guys, those Kaya guys, they were like, hey, wait a minute, this is actually good. Richard Gere was very, like, of the moment, and his style was very cool and detached. Mm -hmm. So set against that, you know, him setting that pace or setting that tone in the 80s, did Pacino look even crazier? I don't know. Mm -hmm. I, I'm just thinking about it. I don't, I don't know the answer. It's something I'd be keen to read a bit more about. And, and as you say, Michael, to go back and read these contemporary reviews is really interesting. Well, we can end it there, but before we do, it would be great if we each went around and talked about a film that we've seen recently that we like. Yeah, uh, a film that's going to be playing at Art of the Real, mm -hmm. um, which I recently saw in South by Southwest called uh, Milford Graves' Full Mantis, yes. which is an extraordinary documentary about a New York jazz drummer called Milford Graves. And it reminded me in a way of, of something like Shirley Clark's portrait of uh, Ornette Coleman, Ornette Made in America, uh, a very formally idiosyncratic, very thoughtful and very empathetic portrait of, of a performer who shares those, those characteristics. It's the filmmaker and the subject really in tune. Um, I almost, you know, it seems crazy. You don't want to spoiler alert for a mm -hmm. documentary, but the less you know about it going in the better. I, it was a real learning experience for me. I didn't know, I knew a bit of the guy's music, but I didn't know about him. This film is extremely intimate. It was made over a period of over a decade, I think. Some incredible uh, archive footage of, of this guy's travels around the world, like going to Japan um, and participating in like group therapy for, for autistic children. Um, and that's some of the most incredible archive footage I've seen. And the film is just absolutely exhilarating. And it does so many interesting things uh, formally and tonally. And I just wanted to watch it uh, again as soon as it had finished. The director is a guy called Jake McGinsky, who co-directed it with an another director called Neil Young. Uh, and I fully recommend it. And I can't wait to see it again. Um, I actually just got caught up with uh, The Treasure by Cornelio Poromboyu, mm -hmm. the Romanian filmmaker, a director I've kind of gone back and forth on, though I generally like, predisposed to like. I think sometimes he, ha he has this kind of, is this a movie or is this not a movie quality to his <laughs> films? Um, and I, 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 I don't mean that a movie has to be a particular thing, but that um, they're so dry and the humor is so subtle 
and the politics of them are so specific that sometimes it's hard to read and but I find that to be an interesting challenge so I thought this this is a very kind of simple it feels like it should be a short film but it's like 80 minutes or so about this man and a neighbor of his trying to dig up the supposed treasure on on his friend's property and it's about as pared down as you can get and it has a really kind of great coda I do recommend getting caught up with it um I will just close by saying I saw on the silver globe which is the yes yeah one of the great talking about over the top yeah (laughs) yes i got myself in the mood for watching hams by seeing polish hams no it's an it's an incredible film that was shot in the late 70s put into was almost destroyed by the communists that were in charge then and then brought out about 10 years later and um the parts that are missing there are many scenes missing from the film and so andre julowski who's the director just has these like crazy shots of just like walking through streets or maybe where a place that is sort of like where the film is set. It's a science fiction film. It's just like the camera is like, it's just bouncing around and there's narration explaining what is happening in these missing scenes. And those are almost more memorable to me than the actually what was filmed. Like what's not there is almost more interesting to me than what, what survived. So if you haven't seen it, check it out, but Thank you both for coming. This was um, delicious. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to the Film Comet Podcast, produced by Violet Luca and Nicholas Rippold, with music by Greg Anji. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher. Film Comment is a bi-monthly magazine published by the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has featured in-depth reviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, arthouse, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomet.com slash subscribe to purchase a digital or print subscription to the magazine, or check out our app, available on Android, iOS, and Kindle at filmcomet.com slash app. The Film Comet Podcast is sponsored by Kino Lorber, presenting a new restoration of Personal Problems, the long-lost film by Ganja and Hess director Bill Gunn, whom Spike Lee called, quote, one of the most underappreciated filmmakers of his time, end quote. Personal Problems opens Friday, March 30th at Metrograph in New York before touring select cities, followed by a VOD and home video release in June.